All right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. Raf Giallo here. You can listen to us every week on RT.ie, Apple and Spotify. You can subscribe to get the latest episodes as they land. Or if you fancy staring at this world map behind me week in, week out, watch uh, watch us on YouTube, where you can also subscribe to the RT Sport channel to get notifications from the latest podcasts, including the RT Rugby and GA podcasts, as well as match highlights and clips from our TV coverage. Lots to chat about today. Ireland women's were in action against Albania in the UEFA Women's Nations League on Friday, and they're also playing this evening. We're also into the final furlong of the League of Ireland, with Shamrock Rovers winning four in a row with two games to spare. So... Um, to discuss that and a lot more, I'm joined by League and FAI Cup winner Graham Gartland, the 42.ie's David Snade, and journalist Barry Landy, who's also the author of Emerald Exiles, um, which was published a couple of years ago and delves into the Irish players who have looked to ply their trade beyond this country and the leagues in the UK. And I uh, hope you all had a good bank holiday. And I suppose, Graham, we'll talk about it in more detail later on, but uh, the fact that Shamrock Rovers have done a four in a row, it is, uh, it's an achievement that shouldn't be, uh, you know, that, that that should be that should be really highlighted and shouldn't be underplayed. No, it's a massive achievement. Um, like you said, um, for these group of players, and majority of them have, have actually been around when you look through it. Alan Manis, I think that's his sixth league. Uh, the reason I start with Alan, obviously, is the obvious choice in goal, but uh, it's his last season as well. Um, I remember playing against Alan in the cup final for Linfield, uh, Satanta Cup final for Linfield back in 06, I want to say. Sorry, 07 I was. And he was man of the match. He was brilliant. And then Rover signed him a couple of years later. A few years later, he was brilliant for them and uh, secured in two titles. He goes away. I then play with him at St. Johnson. Um, and the ultimate professional. What a guy and, and what a career he's had and he's one of the best goalkeepers I've been around. Um and, and what a fitting way for him to bow out with Ford in a row. But the likes of Pico Lopez, Ronald Finn, Lee Grace, um, all these lads that have been mainstays for them and, and fully deserved and, and they've been top professionals as well. And to have that hunger to constantly churn out results week in and week out and to come back from difficult results at difficult moments. To, to regain your title constantly. It's a fantastic achievement from the players, uh, from the management staff and for the club itself. It's It's been brilliant and it's been built on solid foundations, as we keep saying. And most of the clubs that generally do well in this league will, will have good foundations in terms of a budget or uh, a good training facility or a good place to play. And Rovers have all three of them and that's why they've been continually successful. Uh, and have and have been successful on a consistent basis. Um, I think a lot of fans look back on the '87 time when they won it with fondness, but also with a lot of pointing for past glories of a of a stadium that belonged to them and and a team that belonged to them. And I think they have it with this group of players where they have a stadium that they go to week in week out. They know that's not changing. And they have a group of players that know what it means to play for the club, and and um and it's fantastic. Yeah, and uh, we're going to talk about that in more detail in the League of Ireland review. Um, and David, I mean, one thing we're also going to chat about in detail is your uh, what I have to say is a brilliant interview you did with Darren Gibson, the former Ireland and Manchester United midfielder, in the Forty Two Die was I think was published uh, Thursday of last week, where he detailed mm-hmm. um you know his uh, addiction with sleeping pills and other matters as well. And uh, how did the interview come about in the first place? Um, just uh, well, as I sometimes just got chatting to someone who who knows him, and I like I, I remember when I used to live in Manchester, like just 
done a couple of interviews with, with Darren Gibson and just asked how he was and someone said, oh yeah, no, he seems to be doing really well and then just asked for a number to get passed on. It was a bit of a back and forth and just over a couple of weeks of chatting with, with Darren himself, just kind of going through what I wanted to do with the interview and stuff because obviously, like I didn't know, as I was saying, didn't know actually about the sleeping, the sleeping pill stuff and obviously other personal issues that you would have had that you went into detail with in terms of say, issues with say depression or anxiety or just feeling kind of closed out and not being able to kind of talk properly to people around him and stuff and uh, I was kind of coming at it from the point of view of seeing how he was now and chatting about obviously people would have known about to say the couple of incidents with, with drink driving and that was what I kind of spoke to him about beforehand just to listen obviously chatting about this but then seeing what the crack is with you now and it wasn't really kind of flagged well that wasn't the issue etc obviously it was one of the issues but yeah and then just went over to him and he was very very accommodating obviously he um, spent about four hours with him in his house and had chats from various about various aspects of his of his life and he was just very uh very open and just very very vulnerable I suppose in the in the chat talking about stuff I suppose that maybe he hadn't really spoken about even with even with friends maybe up until maybe the last six months or so and it's kind of a, it was a, kind of a, maybe a bit of a symmetry to it in terms of he was saying it was like a year it was a year ago this month when um he had a seizure in his house having obviously the sleeping pill addiction when he was talking about taking 12 to 14 a night and obviously he could have could have died and then obviously he spoke about the kind of uh the impact that then had on his family and stuff and, and what he went through to come through it and yeah so it was just like acting in terms of the interview obviously very nicely to say that about being a good interview but it only comes from I suppose his, his willingness to be open and, and go through stuff with it and it, it seemed as if he was Happy to chat through a, a lot of difficult stuff, you know. Yeah, and we'll come back to that later on in the pod. But Barry as well, um, you've been over and back to Walsall and the connection, of course, is with uh, Drawdy United who are going to be um, sharing owners and we'll we'll delve into that a bit later on as well. But your impressions of Walsall and that kind of area and I suppose as a footballing town as well? Yeah, it's kind of hard to get an impression on the town, Raph. Walsall is one of these places where it's kind of served by its own tra- station the best called stadium station you come straight in from new street and you arrive at the stadium it's, it's kind of out of town a little bit it's like sort of retail park area you know it's out on its own there's no pubs around it or anything like that so it, it's 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 difficult to get a, a sense of the area necessarily but the club um they're doing some positive stuff off the pitch uh so troy vela who are going to be the new draw united owners have have put some money in uh, approximately kind of 300 grand in the last 18 months to to make some upgrades and some renovations around the place just to spruce things up a little bit and make uh, it a better environment for sort of match day, match going fans. Um, it looks, it looks pretty good. I mean, it's in good shape. I mean, it's Walsall are in league two now at the moment. So it's, they've got like an 11 and a half seater stadium, the best cut. So it's one of the bigger stadiums in league two. Um, I mean, they're only getting approximately sort of five and a half, six thousand um, on an, on any given Saturday. So, um, you know, their attendance is probably isn't where it what they want it to be. But from speaking to fans, people involved with the supporters, trust, uh, journalists over there, generally speaking, Trevella get a positive review. So um, I suppose Strahd is a very different animal in that it's a League of Ireland club. It's currently part-time looking to go full-time. Um, it's a very different kind of uh, environment to, to a football league setup, I suppose. So time will tell how that translates to League of Ireland. Um, but there are, you know, obviously examples of of um, owners of 
English clubs buying into the League of Ireland in recent years anyway, like down in, in Waterford and obviously recently at Shelburne as well with the, the whole city owners. So I suppose time will tell. Yeah, we'll delve into that as well a bit later on. But first, uh, of course, the Republic of Ireland women's national team are in UEFA Women's Nations League action and uh, they beat Albania, who would be the group minnows, 5-1 on Friday. And they're playing this evening uh, away in Skoder and uh, they would be expected to pick up another three points. That's live on RT2 and the RT player. So uh, RT Sport Online's Anthony Pine joined me a little bit earlier on just to talk me through the 5-1 win and also where the Ireland team is at. But first, let's listen to the interim manager, Eileen Gleeson. Um, were you overall pleased with the performance as much? I'm pleased with the second half performance, but not pleased with the first half performance. So we had a few things to speak about at halftime in terms of we weren't happy with dropping off away from the ball and you know, trying to continuously play into spaces that were crowded. So we talked about that, and I think the second half, the girls did a lot better. Because you were very happy with your clean sheets in the first two games, so I suppose that concession. Yeah, so I'm not happy with the one goal conceded, uh, for sure. So, you know, that was something we spoke about, and we wanted to continue it, but it is there now, and, you know, it was. We dropped off, we had a player free, left a player free, so we have to... These things happen and we have to move on as well. How can you solve a problem like Katie though? I mean, what a performance tonight with her hat-trick, or two assists. Where is her best position? Oh, listen, well, she just puts the ball in the back of the net. Katie McCabe scores bangers, so we're happy. She's a hat-trick tonight and, you know, it's a, it's a good three points, good second-half performance and a nice way forward for Tuesday. Well done to you, Eileen, and the Thank team. You. So that is Ireland interim manager Eileen Gleeson speaking after the 5-1 win over Albania in the third of the UEFA Nations League games that Ireland have in League B and in that particular group already having dispatched Northern Ireland and Hungary and um, Anthony, I mean, a 5-1 win, it was fairly comfortable apart from a couple of scares including the, the, the seventh minute goal Albania scored but all in all, again, it's just a case of beating what's in front of you. Yeah, well it is. Look, I mean... Eileen, Eileen Gleeson touched on it uh, after the game and has been speaking more about that in the last couple of days in the build-up to this return fixture uh, in Albania that um, Ireland didn't play well in the first half. Um, you know, it was 2-1 at half time because of Katie McCabe. You know, just just her her ability and, um, you know, her, her form in front of goal is, is she's on fire at the moment. But like generally speaking, uh, Ireland didn't play well. Um, they were a little lopsided at times. They looked... Um, I don't know if it was complacency or just this feeling that they kind of knew that they should win the game and probably were going to win the game in all likelihood. And we're almost trying to um, overcompensate, trying to do things too quickly or not quickly enough, uh, taking too many touches of the ball. And at times, uh, particularly Abbey Larkin's side, um, they were just getting a little bit caught high, uh, too high up the pitch at times without the ball. They weren't transitioning quickly enough. And it was just all a little bit off. And against the better team, they would have been much more ruthlessly punished, but they're playing the 77th ranked team in the world in Albania. You know, Albania's women's team was only formed in 2011. They are developing. They've got some good players. You know, they had some tidy footballers. Their goal was a good finish, albeit Ireland did switch off. Um, but ultimately, Ireland are, are a fitter, stronger team with more quality. And in the second half, you know, they, they only had to go up a gear to, to just completely, you know, shut the contest down. Katie McCabe was unbelievable. But, you know, she is head and shoulders above everyone. Uh, at the, you know, when you're playing teams at this kind of level, that they're not going to be used to coming up against a player of that kind of quality. They just aren't. And they really couldn't handle her. She, she played the game completely on her own terms. Um, and 
as you say, Raph, at this point for Ireland, you, you can only beat what's in front of you. I mean, it, 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 these games are, are tricky in their own way as well because you're you're on a hiding to nothing. Like you know, you, you should win and you should win comfortably. Um, and therefore, like you know, <laughs> Ireland win five one, and I'm here talking about negatives, which is unfair, really, in a way. Um, but that's the devils that they've set for themselves over the last couple of years. I, I we're really only we're only going to learn more about this team come the spring. After they will win the group, they will see this out now. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they won all six games. You know, they with all due respect to Hungary and Northern Ireland, Ireland are the strongest team in this group, and they'll go up to League A, and that's where you know you're in with the the, the big guns thereafter. But for now, you know, it's it's I guess it is kind of what Ireland needed after the World Cup, the heaviness of the World Cup, um, weaker opposition. A chance to play a little more freely, a little more expansively, to score goals, to not to clock up wins, um. And although it wasn't perfect on Friday night, it was comfortable in the end. Yeah, and Katie McKay, of course, with the hat trick as you mentioned, and then also momentously last night, ranked twenty second in the Ballon d'Or, um, and that is a that's a huge achievement, uh, for 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 any player to even be on that list. But um, in terms of her, how she interpreted the free role, because uh, in the September window she did start nominally at left wing back, albeit she had um, a bit of freedom to move. But in this free role that she had against Albania, how did she interpret it? Well, she just she just ran the game. <laughs> I mean, she's the, the the thing with Katie McCabe. I think it's just become clear now. You can understand why previous managers have, have played her at left back or on the left because of the power that she has. She's so strong down that side. Um, but really, you know, you, you need to get her on the ball as often and as high up the pitch as possible because she is capable. Any sort of 25, 30 yard range, uh, she's capable of scoring from that range. She's capable of threading passes and and seeing things and, and just by her physical strength and, and will to, to fashion things and make things happen against teams that are just going to sit back in this group. You know, all the, the Ireland are the, are the big shark in this group. So all the other teams are just going to sit back and try and make it as difficult for them as possible. So having someone like her centrally involved high up the pitch um, is obviously going to help. And you can see that 12 goals they've scored in their three games. Um, what, what's happened as well is that Izzy Atkinson is getting a real chance. I think that's going to continue because Izzy is is a left-footed player. She just offers more natural width and balance on that side. But also she allows Katie McCabe, McCabe uh, to drift inwards in infield and, and play more centrally. Uh, I think if, if Ireland are really going to be committed, and look, Eileen Gleeson, um, she, this is, she's there on an interim basis. Uh, you know, it doesn't look like she's going to be there beyond December. Um, but whoever comes next, you know, if they're really committed to, to playing a little more adventurously, then you, you would think that Katie McKay will be stationed it's similar to where she is now. But you're, you're Robin Peters, because she's so good that really you'd love to just clone her and have five around the pitch. Uh, and then we'd probably be talking about winning the World Cup and, win, and winning the Euros. But uh, for now, I, I do think, like, particularly with the development of Atkinson, I think the way forward for this team would be to... to for Kate McKay to be stationed consistently uh, centrally and as high up the pitch as possible. Yeah, and Kira Caruso as well with another brace. And again, that's uh, four goals in her last three games. Obviously, in the World Cup, when we were um, following her progress, um, you know, her work rate really stood out, I think, especially in the game against Canada. But she's found a goal scoring edge, albeit against uh, teams of this level. But it's important, clearly, um, that if there's going to be a cutting edge, that she's able to provide that. Well, she's getting way more chances. You know, she's still missing chances. And, and you know, Kira Caruso is, is tireless and she makes a lot of stuff happen for her. So she does an awful lot of dirty work. She's good at holding the ball up. She brings other players into, into play. I don't think she's become 
I, I have to say, I don't think she's become more clinical in front of goal. I just think she's getting more chances. And and that is because, you know, it has to be said that we are playing weaker opposition. We're not playing Australia and Nigeria and Canada. You know, it's, it's, it, it is quite a step down. Um, but, you know, as I said, that, that's out of Ireland's control. They can only beat what's in front of them. But because they're, you know, Katie McCabe is now playing more centrally, Ireland having much more of the ball. Denise O'Sullivan's influence has grown because of that as well. And it just means that as a striker, it's a dream at the minute for someone like Kira Cruz. She knows going into these games that she will get four or five really good chances. And um, yeah, hats off to her because she's taken them. Still has to put them in the net. She has some very good finishes within that. Uh, really good header on Friday night. I thought her finish against Northern Ireland at the Aviva, although it was a mix-up at the back, uh, it was, you know, she showed real composure just to drill it into the empty net from sort of 25, 30 yards when you've got nearly 40,000 people <laughs> screaming at you, you know, you do have to keep a cool head. And and she's playing well and she's benefited from, I think Ireland generally have benefited from being in this weaker group because long-term they want to play the best teams. That will improve them long-term. And that's going to happen from April onwards. But I think after the World Cup and the way Vera Pau departed and there was just a heavy vibe around the camp having this run of games where they're able to just mop up the group get wins get goals into people like Kira Cruz get minutes international football into Abby Larkin into Izzy Atkinson into people like Aaron McLaughlin um, I think they needed that I think they just need that at this moment um, they're not going to hang around at this level for long they're going to get promoted they're going to be in with the, as I said the, the bigger nations the top 16 in Europe compete in League A, the UEFA Nations League. That's where Ireland are going to be, and that's where they should be. You know, that's that's what they're striving towards, and it will benefit them, as I said. We, it's much healthier for them to be in that environment. But right now, um, I think it's just, it's good for everybody right now where they are, you know, not yeah. to say the obvious. Everybody likes to win games, you know. Yeah, and obviously they're away in Albania this evening, coverage on RT2 and RT player underway from 10 to 5. And then they finished the campaign, as you mentioned earlier, in December. Uh, and that's going to be against Hungary at home and then Northern Ireland uh, away from home. And that's on the 1st and 5th of December, respectively. But they could actually, math like we expect them to, you know, to breeze through this group and qualify top anyway and get uh, automatically promoted. But they could actually qualify tonight pretty much and just have it all wrapped up. They, they can win the group, yeah. If they beat Albania and uh, Northern Ireland are at home to Hungary in a slightly later kickoff. So they will have the luxury. If Ireland do the business, they will be able to sort of sit back and probably watch the last sort of half an hour of that match, second half of that game. If that ends in a draw, then that's it. They can't be caught with two games to spare. They have Hungary at home and then they uh, they play Northern Ireland away in their final group game. And, and that's, that's what they'll want. I mean, they just want to get this boxed off as quickly and efficiently as they possibly can. Um, those two final games um, would then become, you know, golden opportunities to blood more talent, to take a look at other people. You know, the pressure's off, um, and I'm sure I'm decent that that, that they're really, they really they want to do a professional job this evening, which I expect them to do. Um, and then, as you say, yeah, that that would be that. Um, North, Hungary bet Northern Ireland uh, in Budapest in, in the last window. Really dramatic game, actually. There was there was a couple of late goals. I think there was three goals in the last sorry eight nine minutes. Uh, they bet them three two. So it's absolutely not beyond the realms of possibility that that will be a draw because they're quite evenly matched both of those teams. But um, look, I think it's a, it's a formality either way. Raf doesn't happen. In this window, you know, will happen in the next the next one because Hungary at home, Ireland beat them, and that would definitely be it then. And and you certainly would expect that to happen. 
Yeah, and uh, just looking at the squad as well, like there's only one domestic-based player, which is the the interesting thing, and that's P-Mounts Aaron McLaughlin, um, who came on uh, the other night just just before the hour mark. How much do you read into that? Because I, I suppose uh, we would be talking about more, obviously, but Abby Larkin, of course, moved to Glasgow, and there have been, um, I suppose, in the wider player pool as well, there's been a number of movements from from here to to England in the in the last while. Well, look, it's... I mean... It, it the the competition and the depth in the squad is is unprecedented. It's never been as as strong as it currently is. Like it, you know, in the match day twenty three on Friday night, Lucy Quinn, Heather Payne, and Amber Barrett weren't in the twenty three. Um, Neve Fatty, Marissa Shiva, Aoife Mannion, Rusha Littlejohn, Claire Walsh, Tara O'Hanlon, Savannah McCarthy, Jess Sue, Leanne Kiernan. These are all completely missing from the squad, uh, this month. So. You know, it's not easy to, to get into this panel right now. And I think when you have so many players, if you go through the squad now, Aaron, Aaron McLaughlin, who's been brilliant with P-Mount this season, by the way, really key figure for them in, in winning the league title. Uh, but she's been open about her ambitions to, to go to England. You know, she's in she's in the third year of a teaching degree. She wants to, to get that completed. So, you know, she will be looking, at, I guess, in the next sort of year to 18 months to make the move across England. And, and almost all of the squad now are based in in England or around Europe or in the States, you know, in very strong professional environments. Um, our own domestic league is making forward strides. There's some very good players in that league, but it, it is hard, you know, it is hard when you're you're trying to compete with, with players who are, you know, in, in a say in, in England in the championship or the women's super league where they they they're exposed to to day in, day out, really high quality professional environments. Um so I wouldn't. I, I. I. just think in terms of reading, what would you read into it? I, I just think the competition is very high, very strong, uh, and for any young player in in our own domestic league trying to make that breakthrough. And by the way, you know, you're talking. I think mean, Gleason is someone with a, an immense knowledge of that league and an immense interest and passion and, and care for that league. So she'll know exactly what's there. She'll know what's the cream of the crop. But you know, if just the names that I mentioned that that aren't involved this month, seasoned international players you know who've been based in england and abroad for years you know it just shows you how difficult it is right now and that's you know i eileen gleason has said herself like it, that that is good it's it's difficult for her and, and it's frustrating for the players who maybe aren't getting in but that's that's a good place for ireland to be in yeah, and then domestically there are fixtures, of course, on Wednesday, DLR Waves against Shamrock Rovers and then Galway United against Athlone. And uh, that will be followed then by two final rounds of games on Saturday, this Saturday, and then uh, the uh, the following Saturday. And P-Mount, of course, already confirmed as champions. The cup final, we know it's going to be Shelburne against Athlone. And former Athlone manager Tommy Hewitt is set to take over as Sligo Rovers manager, replacing Steve, uh, Steve Feeney, who is stepping away for work and family reasons at the end of this season. And then Noel King is well leaving Shelburne at the end of the season after three trophies including last season's double and has a cup final to look forward to as well and that's an interesting one I suppose for Shells as well there's an opportunity for him to go out on a high after what has been a pretty fruitful spell yeah I mean look he's he's, he's been there since for the last um, almost four years and two league titles a cup potentially another cup uh, in this year's uh, decider at Tallaght Stadium against Athlone and, um, you know, they'd gone a while. It'd been five years, I think, since they'd won the league um, when Noel King came in in 2020. And he's got them back into the, the habit of winning trophies, winning major trophies. They also had a good a good uh, crack at the Champions League in that time. They had a really good win in, in, in the Champions League under his during his reign also. 
Um, you know, I think I think the cup final will be close. I think Shells will be favourites to win it. But you know, Athlone will be very motivated. They got that in in the final last year. Kieran Kulduff came in in the summer and Tommy Hewitt stepped away. And I think he's probably just given them a a renewed sort of energy and a little bounce. So I think they'll be stubborn and, and tough opponents. I think it will be a close game, but I expect Shelburne will probably have enough. And and you know, they're not going to need much more motivation on cup final day. But the fact that Noel King is heading off into the sunset, I'm sure they'll all want to to send him on his way with another piece of silverware. And um, I think, you know, if he does that, it could be, he'll look back and that with a tremendous amount of satisfaction, which I'm sure he does regardless anyway, because he's done a really good job. Yeah, and before I let you go, I suppose we also have to mark the fact that there has been, you know, the latest centurion for Ireland, of course, Diane Caldwell, um, you know, the maybe the World Cup didn't go the way she would have wanted in terms of minutes and involvement, but she's been part of a very, very long journey for Irish women's football and also on top of it uh, has been there through the dark times and the harder times and uh, still being there and getting that moment. And I think it was nice that it was coincidental that it's happened at Tallis Stadium as well. Oh, it, it was a really special night for her. You know, we, we spoke to her afterwards and um, look, you know, there's, there's, there's a few in that squad who've been around a long time. And as you say, thick and thin, more thin than thick. This is the, the sort of glory days that were experienced in the last two or three years. But to get to that point, it took a, a lot of soldiering through tough times. And Diane Caldwell was was crucial to that. 2017, you know, that, that, that the crucial stand they took the sort of Year zero in terms of uh, changing the, the game in this country. Uh, she was a very important figure uh, in that time. And she is a very honest, outspoken person in terms of if, if she thinks things dip below the required standard, she has never been afraid to say that. And that's not just with Ireland. I mean, she was outspoken at her time in Reading when Reading made the decision to move back to part-time football. Um, you know, she, she, she did come out in, in strong opposition to that. Um, I know, you know, she she took her fair share of criticism for her appraisal of Vera Powell's time in charge. Um, that may have split opinion, but that was her opinion. That 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 was, um, you know, you'd have to say a qualified opinion in terms of a, a player who's who's been with Ireland for a long time, and who is very passionate about continuing to raise the bar and and raise the standards. Now, whether she should have said it in the way she did or maybe she was too blunt or a little bit uh overly critical that's that's you know people will have their own views on that but certainly she deserves immense respect for what she's done in a green jersey and i i, th- I thought she, i think she's playing really well as well you know she hasn't she had kind of dropped out of favor uh under vera pow and she's back in now you know Eva Mannion's injury and, and knee fatty's injuries um i've, I've given her an opportunity and and She's playing really well, um, and it was it was a great night for her, and it was it was well deserved. And as I said, she is part of that sort of little bunch of centurions now, really experienced players who are very important. Like we're we're talking about, you know, Eileen Gleeson is 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 using this window, and we'll continue to use this window to maybe get more minutes into the less experienced players in the squad. But the, that core of experience is really important to what happens next you can't just blood a bunch of young players at once you know it doesn't work it's it's you need a solid core of seasoned players around them and Ireland had that and, and Dion Cole was very much part of that herself Louise Quinn um you know even even Kate McCabe and Denise Sullivan who are still only in their 20s you know but but they've, they've been around for so long like 
it, it's so important to have players like that. You know, Aaron McLaughlin spoke about it this week as well, like coming into camp and having these guys who are actual, you know, they look up, these the young players look up their icons to them as well to get them, take them, take them under the wing and, and show them the ropes and, and talk them through difficult situations and games. Um, and you know, I know, I know Dan Cowell has has is usually respected within that dressing room and, and as part of that key sort of leadership group. So yeah, it was it was it was a lovely night for her and um you know she earned it. Yeah, and she'll be on her way to Capital 101 this evening in uh, Skoda, Albania. But Anthony, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Rob. All right, so that was Anthony Pine of RT Sport Online just discussing a, the Republic of Ireland women's national team, but also a couple of uh, domestic matters as well. And this Friday, we're also going to have League of Ireland coverage at 7.35 on RT2 and the RT player. And the results, which... Uh, Pretty much confirmed the lay of the land in terms of who's going to be champion, which is, of course, Shamrock Rovers four in a row, and also who's going into the relegation playoff, that being Cork City. So Friday, uh, Derry City won 1-0 at Cork. Uh, Dundalk beat Bohemians 2-0. Shelburne beat UCD 3-2, with Jack Moylan scoring a hat-trick. And then Shamrock Rovers in the uh, title-clinching victory uh, over St. Pat's, which finished 2-0. And that was Aaron Green and Graham Burke with two late goals. And then... Uh, the following day, Sligo Rovers and Drawdy United drew nil all. And then yesterday, live on RTE, Shamrock Rovers uh, went to Cork City and drew nil all. And Cork going into the relegation playoff uh, where they'll await uh, either Waterford or Cove. And then Shamrock Rovers, of course, celebrating uh, a title. But uh, before we listen to Stephen Bradley, first, Graham, uh, you know, the the win over Pats it was kind of symbolic um you know you talked about a couple of these things a bit earlier on but the depth that they have built and the fact that the goals that came were via the substitutes was fairly symbolic of uh, what has been built there yeah it was obviously we done the game for RTE on on Friday and we had spoke about a half time about the depth of the squad that Rovers had compared to Pats and that the substitutions could change the game and what impact it could have. You know, Pat's had a good bench. They had a strong experience bench. You had Jake Moraney and the Chris Forrester. You had Carty, Connor Carty, and all of them came on. But th- that's where the game changed. Was obviously Rovers are able to bring on Graham Bork, uh, and Graham Bork sort of gets them playing a little bit and shows a bit of guile. What Pat's were trying to do was obviously jump one of the centre backs out to to take one of the extra midfielders that Rovers had, and it worked a little bit at the start. Uh, Keen Levy was excellent in the game, and for sixty minutes. 65 minutes, Pats were excellent, really good, showed a lot of energy. Mason Media was was brilliant, uh, really good to watch, really good endeavour, really good hunger. And I thought when he went off, it wasn't so much, I think him going off took a lot of energy out of our team. And then Forrester comes on and plays at his own pace, and that's great, and, and, and that's good when you have control of the game, but it just sort of gave control over the Rovers a little bit. Um, and the goal, it's a really good cross from Dylan Watson. Aaron Green gets his head on it. It's probably the one header that uh, Redmond doesn't win in, the, in, in his own area that evening. And then the second goal is just a silly mistake where it's it's not a great pass back to Norman and he kicks it off Bork and, and it's all over. But that that's what we said was would be the difference between the two teams. And we called on the night and, and it turned out to be true that the strength and depth that Rovers can bring off the bench is, is unmatched in the league. Um, they're bringing off, they're bringing on experience, but they're bringing on obviously players who have won titles as well and know what it's like to go over the line. When you consider that Alamanis has been out for for a good bit this year, um, Jack Bourne has been out for nearly all the year. They've had injuries to key players at key times, but they, they've managed to get through it. And um, 
I think that's been the difference between them and Derry and Pats in terms of the chasing pack is that they just don't have the strength and depth that the Rovers have occurred over the last three or four seasons. Yeah, let's listen to Stephen Bradley. He was speaking after the uh, the match at Richmond Park. Stephen, another league title, four in a row. What's the overriding emotion when that second goal goes in? Ah, just immense joy. You know, these players have been incredible for a long period of time. It's hard to win one title, but to win two, three, four, um, and constantly being the team there to be shot at, it, it's it's hard. It takes a lot of work. It takes showing up every day, and these players and staff have been absolutely incredible. So immense uh, pride and, and joy in what we've done. And to emulate, everyone is talking about that team in the 80s. You have to either have been here to watch them or to know what the DNA of Rovers is like, to know what it means to emulate that group. Yeah, we, we fully understand what, what that team done and and the regard they held in to this day because of that. And we wanted to be part of that. Um, that was the plan when we first came in and thankfully we've gone and done that. But uh, we'll enjoy tonight, obviously. And uh, when the dust settles, we need to plan for the next one. What's been the key to this season? Uh, togetherness. Togetherness. We, we've been good in patches, poor in patches. We've had injuries, suspensions. Uh, we've had people taking shots at us from all angles and we've stayed together and uh, together and everybody stepped up in the squad when needed be. Do you always believe that you're going to get to this level? Because, you know, you mentioned the opening five or six games of the season, people were writing you off. Some people perhaps maybe took a bit of satisfaction in the European campaign. You've shut a lot of people up tonight, maybe inside and outside the club. Yeah, definitely. There's been people coming from some all angles. Um, and I, I look, I think if any team was going to catch us, it was this year, considering the start we had. But the players showed incredible character um, and uh, strength to come back from that and, and then go and win the league again. It's yeah, an unbelievable achievement. The most difficult of league titles on and off the pitch for you? Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. Off the pitch was difficult to be people coming for us uh, from within and, and outside, which is not nice. Um, and then the four in the row, the pressure. The players are only human. They hear about it all the time. Everyone was talking about, can we do it? And uh, they have to cross the white line every week, and they did, and all credit goes to them. From a personal point of view, you're now the only manager to have done four in a row. The, obviously, the 80s was two different managers. Like, that's a phenomenal achievement. I know you're going to try and deflect it onto the squad and the backroom staff and everything else, but like, what does that mean for you as a young coach? Well, that was the plan when we came in. That's what we wanted to do. We got a bit of stick early on, a lot of stick early on. We stayed with it. Uh, we built the group over time. We've bought and sold players, and and uh, and we've done it. But uh, on the front of it, on the face of it, it's not me. It's Glenn, Stephen, Tony, Jose, Owen. There's so many of them in the background there. So it, it really is a team effort. When you achieve something like this, it's not about one man. It's about the team. There's an awful lot of speculation about the future. Is there any doubt in your mind that you'll be back to defend this and go for five? I want it. I want to go for five. It's down to the board now. Do you think that's likely that you will stay on? Like I said, I want to. I want to. Uh, we wanted to see the top table, now we want our own table. Uh, well, like I said, the board have to make that happen. What for you is the issue? Is, is, it, is it budgetary? Is it contracting players? There's been suggestions of rebuilds. Do you think the support is there that you need as a management team to, to press on with what your plan is for after title number four? I just want to see us get better. I want to see us to strive to get better every year. Um, that's my job, to drive this club forward on and off the pitch. The day I stop doing that, I may as well retire. Um, I'm hungry, I want more. Um, and, and I feel this club is set up to want more and, and that's where we should be going. Is there a bit of a rebuild needed? No, I think our average age is 27.3 this year. Will we keep evolving? Of course we will. Uh, but people are mistaken uh, experience for age. Enjoy the celebrations. Thank you.
David, like, listen, if you listen to what he said there, three times he mentions uh, people coming for us. I think it's the third time he mentions from within uh, and outside. Mm-hmm. And then before touching on, you know, putting the onus on the board in terms of taking things forward and his own his own future. What do you, what do you make of uh, what you heard there? Um, yeah, like, it was not so much surprising because obviously it's just in the aftermath of winning the league. And in fairness, Stephen Bradley is a very upfront fellow. If you ask him a question, he'll tell you what's on his mind. And yeah, some of the issues as well as have been kind of in the background pretty much, I'd say, for the last 12, 13, 14 months in terms of developing between, say, certain aspects and certain personnel on the board and himself. And obviously, from my own understanding of it, it's not purely down to, to just a budget issue. And when he talks about, you know, it's down to the board or people coming at you from within, it's obviously there's stuff going on there that isn't just related to, well, how do you improve in terms of what the, the finance is behind behind the budget was. There's there other, other aspects to it. And yeah, he's just been up front and I suppose he's coming from a position now where like he's as he said, like he wants to go, he wants to stay on and do the and win be more be more successful, win more win more titles. And he's probably at a, at a place where position of power where he knows well that, like it would be madness in the extreme, I suppose, if if he was to be allowed if, if he if he was to be allowed leave given the given the success he's had. But then there's also probably the element where People, I suppose, on the on the board at Rovers would probably point back to the time where we were the one who kind of stood by you and showed you that support that, that was that was needed for you when you were kind of going through a struggling point of view, and we were the ones who had that maybe that that longer term ability to to look to the future and not kind of panic when when fans were were calling for them to to be to be sacked, you know. And it has been an effort. You look at the kind of Graham kind of mentioned it there about the the team in eighty seven. It's kind of. It's very telling that if you look at what happened the month after that, they, they had to leave Milltown, you know, it was sold from them. They're now at a point where they've just about to add a stand that's going to bring the capacity up past 10,000. Like the difference couldn't be greater. And it's like, well, is this the fella, is this the manager now who will be there to continue on that success? And you would like to think, would like to think it is. Obviously, Europe and the budget part of the issue there that's been happening over the last while in terms of not being able to maybe tie down the likes of, say, Rory Gaffney or Jack Bourne and offering the kind of contracts that they normally would have been able to kind of foresee is because obviously they know obviously there's going to be a significant loss coming on the back of what's happened this season, not going further in Europe on the back of the year before that when they were more successful and got to the group stages of the of the conference league. So that's obviously the budget and all the rest of it is just seems to be one element to it. I don't think it's the the defining factor of where some of these kind of grievances have um have come from, you know. So that's something that you would think over the next little while will we'll get smoothed out. But I, unless something drastic happens, I would be surprised if Stephen Bradley isn't the manager of Sean McGrawers for next season. Yeah, and Graham, I suppose, looking into the future, as as Stephen Bradley said himself there, you know, maybe people are focused on experience as opposed to, to age, and he feels like the, um, you know, the average age of the squad is pretty good, but stability is always key for a club as well, and that, you know, that can't be discounted either. Oh, again, we touched, we touched on it previously, the stability of the club is is paramount for everyone's success, not just the first teams, but the stability's come through the fact that the manager's been in the job so long, the fact that the people running the club have put in place structures that we have we have a, a set base and a training ground where all the players go and everybody knows that's that's where we train up in Roadstone. Um again the stadium's not going anywhere. So that that in itself brings stability as well. And that's that's what every club wants. And most clubs who are stable will tend to want to be successful. 
um, and 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 that's what it's about, and and I, and the success will continue because of that, because um of the stability that that's been afforded to the club. But look, I touched on it before. You know, this is this is all down to what the members have done for the football club, and 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 they made that decision, um, probably eight years ago to give up some shares to sell some shares so that they could build the academy. And that became the training. The academy was done through academy funds, and that became the training base for the first team as well. So everything's enhanced each other, and that's the that's the big thing from the football club point of view. Like you know, so um, and like you said, uh, Stephen is on an employee contract, so he's not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. I know that David touched on that before. He's not actually on a he's not out of contract at the end of the season. He's an employee. I remember Crowers. That's what we all were when we first joined the academy back in uh, 2014. So um, that's what he is. So that's what it's going to be next year, let's say, as well. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's just on that as well. It shouldn't be stressed as well. Like it, it's not a case of like Stephen Bradley going up against the whole Shamrock Rovers board and a big kind of... Like, there's obviously a clash of certain personalities and certain stuff that's happened over the last while that's kind of at the, the root of this, you know what I mean? So it's not as if even... The, the makeup of how Rovers is, where obviously you've got, say, obviously Dermot Desmond having 25% and Ray Wilson having 25%, and then you have the fans and the the say they have, and obviously there's the there's the board and the members there as well. Like, it's like there's still an awful lot of goodwill there, and there's still an awful lot of like mutual respect there as well. That it's it's not, it doesn't strike me as a case of that it's a, a massive power struggle between like one, one person and another person and going head to head where it could be an owner then having the decision to, to make. That's not. That's not going to be the nature of it. It does kind of, I don't know what even what Graham would say, but what feels on it, but it kind of strikes me as something that can happen in football as well over a number of years where people have been working together and there's been success and people have a sense of, well, who's responsible for the success and like maybe all those issues as well. And then like that, that can just happen in football, you know, bit by bit, like people working together for a long time. Sometimes relationships can just get frayed a little bit, you know. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned the academy there, um, Graham and Naj Razi, of course, uh, in the uh, match on Monday there uh, against Cork City, he makes his first uh, senior start. And it was interesting that he was uh, playing because, like, I think it was the day before I was looking at uh, the BBC website and in the their gossip column section, it was interesting to see he was mentioned there in terms of the interest that is there from some huge clubs, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Man City, Arsenal, all, all sort of being uh mentioned um a what did you make of his performance and also um my understanding is he's planning to stay um at rovers until he's 18 and then thinking of making a move but what would you be looking at like what would you say is best for him kind of going forward um it's hard to know it's hard to give Naj advice he's his own he's his own player Naj. he always was um he's been at the academy since he was six when we were in the sparwell days um and he was always his own his own boy. He was uh in what way? In what way? He was a tough character to coach, Naj. And oh. uh you know, there was times he'd take the ball himself and that was it, my ball. And those other times he'd be giving out to people and like just difficult, but like those other times he'd just make you laugh and the way he was, he just has that thing of He's gonna find a way to get whatever way, whatever he needs to get on the day, and uh, whether that's where the football or out at times, and he was um very headstrong, um, but 
he was probably the, one of the best players we had when we first came to the club. He didn't realize how good he was. He was six. We used to play him up a couple of ages. I remember going to a few Southampton trips and they were thinking, who's this kid? Like, um, the clubs that are mentioned, I think probably three of them would be accurate. I think City, Chelsea and, and Real Madrid would be the accurate ones. The other ones, like you said, are in the gossip column for a reason. Uh, Raph, um, I thought he was excellent in the game. I thought he showed a real desire to get the ball back as well, which is something that was worked on with him. He had a really close relationship with, with Shane Robinson, who was left uh, the club all the way up and made sure he was... Um, Naj's dad would have had a lot of trust in Shane and and would have taken a lot of advice from him. And Shane would have went to him and and, and got Naj onto a pro deal um, last year or the year, but just as he was turning 16. What Naj decides to do now is up to him. He had a brilliant Euros with the under-17s. He was fantastic. And that was where people really saw his quality. But what they also saw was his character and his willingness to take the ball and his hunger to get his team involved in the game and make sure that they weren't going to... He was brave. The one thing I would say about Naj is he's brave and that he, he'll always want the ball and he'll take the ball. And it's nearly like a bravado thing of, like, I, I'm going to take the game to you here and I don't fear you. But he'll find a way to hurt you. If you're not quick, he'll run you. If you're quick and strong, he'll come and play off you. Um, but yeah, he's a he's a really he's a really talented boy. Um, but what he does and what he decides to do, I don't know. Um, if he decides to stay at Rovers and trying and tries to break into the first team and get more minutes, that's his decision. If he decides, look, I can. I'm I'm, I'm not sure if he goes to Europe. That's his decision as well. But um, the club have done everything right by him. You know, he's like I said to you, he's been on a pro contract. Um, he was in the transition year program. Uh. Couple of couple of years ago, we've gone through the Ashfield program as well, where he's doing his leaving cert, run by Stephen Gray. So the club have done everything to make sure that he can carry on and have a full career ahead of him. And uh, he's an exciting prospect and one that we should all probably um, look to get behind. Yeah, I think uh, we did talk about him a little bit in the summer as well, along yeah. with uh, Mason Media, of course, who you mentioned uh, earlier on for Pats and uh, E.K. Razi, who we were talking about uh, a couple or a few weeks Addy ago. Solanke. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. So, like, look, Naj plays with the first team yesterday while the team, his 19th team, were down in Galway winning the FAI Cup at Eamon DC Park, where, you know, we probably would have been a big player for them this year and carried them to a, to a final. Um, it was a really good weekend for our academy from that point of view when our 17s won in Tallah Stadium, Jay Shields uh, team. We had a good victory down in Athlone, beating St. Pat's 1-0. Our 14s narrowly missed out. So it was, it was a good weekend for the academy all round and a good weekend for the club as a whole. Yeah, and a couple of age groups up, uh, obviously, for Pats as well. So Sam Curtis, um, I think it's been pretty much confirmed he's going to be leaving, David, uh, leaving Pats. Um, to, Where's he to going, move? David? Where's he going? Yeah, I don't know. That's the truth. Europe, you've got the end. You've got the now and path. Look no, at you. No, no, no. Genuinely, don't. I know. Obviously, we spoke to John Daly after the match on Friday. Just on, like on the on that, and he was kind of saying he, he seems as if Sam Course has made made it clear to him that he does want to go because he's eighteen in yeah, December. December so, obviously, yeah. so obviously that that route opens up in terms of um, in terms of the UK. Same obviously Adam Murphy, you could have went to Bristol. Um, Mason uh, Amelia, yeah. is another. Sorry, go on. Yeah, sorry, I was just saying. In terms of Adam Murphy, there's more leeway. Uh, my understanding is that that there is a possibility he could stay. 
Yeah, it didn't seem as definitive. It seemed it definitely seemed as if there could be options there for him. Oh, I kind of an avenue there for him where where he'd remain as well. And you kind of forget as well with him, like his progress probably would have even been swifter in terms of that was someone who I think would have been introduced around the time of Stephen O'Donnell. But he's had a couple of really bad hamstring injuries yeah. as well, and like he was coming through at a at a much faster rate, and then those have kind of hampered him. But this year is actually. He's sort of maybe been out for a bit, but he hasn't. He hasn't had a, a major setback, which has been great for him. It's been good that he's had that kind of season. And uh, but it's an interesting one all around because even with Melia as well, like, he, like he's only only just gone sixteen, you know, and he's starting that game. He's Pat's youngest ever player in the modern era to start a league yeah. game. The club tweeted out. But even with with the rover side of it as well, and the Pat side, of it, even through it's kind of like that that avenue now where and even with Sam Cor- like Sam Corsi has played over sixty more probably than now at this games, and he's he's not even eighteen yet. Do you know what I mean? So like. That's the kind of the view now you're kind of thinking in terms of lads who are at that age. Will the league sustain them for, for these little periods over the next couple of years where they're still going to be developing, but then have that possibility of fourteen? Because that's where, let's be honest, and like that level of maybe the same level of development that they might be getting at say a Premier League club or an English club or a European club at that age. That kind of not that it goes out the window, but if if they're naturally they're going to have to emerge into a fourth team environment and that's when it's about results and the, the focus is going to change and that development could stop slightly in terms of maybe the work that might need to be done unless certain training schedules or certain things are, are you know amended slightly where but that, that is that that can be difficult to do and it's just something that I've even been thinking about over the last while where players who are like the likes of a Sam Corsi are getting that development now but in a fourth team environment and it's a totally different type of of development it's a development as a footballer do you know what I mean whereas there could still be technical tactical stuff that they might need to work on but it's not going to get worked on as much does that make sense I don't know if that makes sense to Graham if where I'm coming at where no you're, they're in, they're, you go through your development phase they're in the playing to win phase so they do whatever it takes to win the game on the, on the Friday because that's what people are paying yeah. to watch do where you're in, you know, during the development phase, they're in the playing to train phase and playing to perform phase type of thing. So that, you know, I remember listening to Mendieta talking about this years ago and he had, when he was at Valencia and Gus Hiddink came in and Gus Hiddink said, look, any, any of the lads who are under a certain age and haven't played over 100 games are on a different schedule to the players that have. And they would have stayed back a lot and done a lot of technical work. And Gus Hiddink was was adamant that he had to do it. And Mendieta probably credits that for becoming a technically better footballer because he said, look, technically I wasn't great at 18. I was in the first team because I could run. He says, and then we've done afternoon sessions with, with hitting constantly on a Monday and a Tuesday that allowed us to technically catch up even though we were playing in the first team and having to perform and learning to win. Our catch-up phase was on the Mondays and Tuesdays doing our technical sessions when the lads who are over 22 and had all this experience were able to go home. But what happened was a mindset came about in the club where if lads wanted to stay back and do extra, they join in and all that stuff. And, mm. and and you're right, David, the lads that break into the first team now are an early age. The value shoots up. If they don't stay in the first team, the value can dip. And then you're like, well, how do you keep value in these young players that are coming through? So, Sam Cortes's value is because he's got into his he's got into Pat's first team and he's stayed in the first team and he's made an impact. Uh, but then you're saying how is he do, how does he go and do extra to develop other parts of his game, his distribution? If he is going to play right back, how can he develop his distribution? But he has to go and do that extra because he mm. he's not he's on a different path to 
somebody else at Pats where he's six, he's 17 or six, he's turning up to 18, sorry. But he's he's trying to be a full international here. Some of these players mightn't have the skill set to be a full international, but he needs to work on that to allow him to do it. And it's that conversation that you have with where do you what's your ceiling here? Where do you want to get to? And how can we help you get there? But it is that the cotton that it's a great position to be in, but you have to realise that there might be more for my career than the league here. But how do I get it to make sure that I'm I'm hitting the potential markers that I've set set in front of myself? But you're right, there is that element of it, yeah. Yeah, and Barry, I mean, there's an aspect I just wanted to touch on briefly as well. And obviously, you know, your book that you talked about, uh, that you, you wrote a couple of years ago, Emerald Exiles, which touches on the Irish footballers who've gone further afield. And a lot of the young players we've just mentioned there, they're either, you know, they're subject of interest from clubs on the continent or they have, in some cases, even been on trial um, at various clubs. So, you know, as, the, as that pathway opens up, like what do you make of it, obviously, with the backdrop of Brexit in the background too? It's obviously opened up and become a kind of a topic that we're all very, very familiar with now. Obviously, up to a couple of years ago, the idea that foreign clubs, big foreign clubs would take an interest in Irish talent was rare enough. Like there was young players going on trial and, and going to certain places, but it was it was kind of rare in the extreme. And when you would hear about it, it would be a bit of a story. Now it's a lot more normalised because you see those clubs looking to take advantage of um, that Brexit situation, as you say, and they kind of realise that the the market for top Irish talent has kind of reduced when you take all the, the British and Scottish, uh, like the English and Scottish clubs out of the equation. They realise now there's a route in and they can get them. Um, it's it's tricky. Like, obviously, on the face of it, it's it's a great experience. It's a great option to have to be able to go to a foreign country as a young lad and go to academies where, you know, um, they can learn a certain type of football. It might be very technically proficient players um, playing alongside guys that that they wouldn't get the opportunity to play with um, in the UK or in Ireland. But at the same time, you have to realise, like, these are kids who are 16, 17. You know, packing up and leaving home and going abroad isn't going to be for everybody. Um, it's not easy. It's not simply a kind of a football decision. It's a life decision. Um, and more so than kind of players who are going over when they're in their, you know, early 20s, mid 20s, late 20s, um, who might be able to, to I suppose, um, take that in their stride a little bit better. You know, these are kids. So it's it's not as simple as, um, and, and there is a narrative round at the moment, like, isn't it great to see, it's great to see lots of young lads going over and, and joining teams in Italy, joining teams in Germany, wherever it might be in France as well. There's been a few, but it's not that simple you know there are there are a lot of considerations to take into to to affect like your education like your ability to be able to go over and sustain yourself and to actually sort of take in a new environment like that new language new style of play new attitudes to to football and to life so while it's a great option to have um it's nice to see you know that, that option now kind of available to, to Irish players more. I don't know. I'm sure Graham knows a lot more about the kind of numbers of, of young players who are getting genuine interest from, from clubs on the continent. But um, it's it's certainly a good option, I would say. Yeah, Barry, sure. see, see the Italian one. Yeah. Um, what What's your view on them going to Italy at the moment? Because 
what struck me about the Italian move, and, and we've had players go, nothing seems to ever bear fruit. Mm. Like it, 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 it's, it, And there's a lot of people trying to push players to Italy with the view that they moved them back to the UK around about 18. It's like, it's a bit like bridging transfers where they go from 16 to 18 with the view that they're going to come back and end up at, say, a Watford or a, or a Char- or no, um James Banco ends up back at Charlton and, and things like that. And and, and it, it can it can look a little bit where they're moving them there to get them further mm-hmm. down the road. And I don't know I don't know what your view in on it or if you, or what what hate you have on it or or any information you have on that because that's the worry for me when when I hear people going oh we have this boy going to Italy I always always worry about the Italian ones a little bit you know. Yeah, it's there. Obviously, have been a few cases like that. So obviously, James Abankwa went over to Udinese at the same time as 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 Festi Apicelli, who he's broken into the team. Obviously, he's a um a sort of different case in the fact he was in England first and and then went to to Italy. Whereas um James has come from from Pats. Um, he barely got a kick. I think I think he made maybe one league appearance and then went to Charlton Athletic. Obviously, Carl Heffernan was at was at AC Milan and is now at Newcastle. Um, yeah, like. Kind of, I suppose the more moves there are, um, the more scope there is then for for lads coming back. The the kind of the more of them there will be, um, and people will start to question whether it's a route that's worth going down in the first place. Um, I don't know whether they're getting a better education in Italy, um, than they would get if they had maybe stayed in in Ireland. Obviously, they're going over at a younger age, fifteen, sixteen, in some cases, um. Yeah, it's hard to know. Like, I I don't know personally, kind of what, um, what level of education and, and training they're getting over there. Um, it's really tricky. See, yeah. see from see from my point of view, Raf, and 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 I, I'd love I'd love you to maybe ping this one out to parents here because the 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 issue you have with the agents with the with the Brexit thing is. There's agents that will come in and promise your son a trial. So he'll come in and go, I really like your son. I think he has ability. There might be clubs interested in that that child at the moment, but the agent has a good relationship with clubs in Europe. So what he'll do is he'll ring up and ask for a favour. So he'll ring a club and say, I have a kid here. I'm trying to sign him with my agency. Will you have a look at him for me? So we'll go to that club. The club mightn't want to have a look at the child. They might not be interested in the player himself, but he's doing it as a favour to the agent. The child comes back, the agent gets the child to sign on, and then he's hoping that another club comes and hits. And, and therefore, that's how they're getting players. Now, they're not getting the trials off the back of their own ability. They're getting trials off the back of a favour for the child. The problem you have is you're only allowed two trials per year now for these kids. So you're taking away one opportunity for them just so you can sign with that agency. And they're using it a lot. And that's how players have been got with companies before and, and it's just nobody's calling her out and the problem I have is the parents think oh it's great it's a great experience for my son to go to this club but they're being used and the clubs are, are the agent is being a little bit underhand and saying to them oh yeah I'll get you I'll get you a trial at this club sign here and it's wrong and it's killing them because now they're now they're tied in with this agency and then they're just sitting there waiting for, for this kid to do really well and then they'll jump in on the back of that Sometimes, and and again, they put finances into that child to help him get whatever he needs to get, but they have to get that finances back at some stage. 
So there might be then eventually a couple of clubs come in for this kid. That agent's going to push him to the club that pays the most because he has to get that financial money that he's put down on that player back. And that's where you, the players and their, and their parents are losing control over their, over their sons, sons and daughters at this stage. And I just think it just kills. And nobody, people are overlooking it and they're not realising what's going on. And when you call it out, you're getting told, oh, no, that's the way it goes. But it's wrong. Like Because before where you could have multiple trials a season, that was, it wasn't right then, but it was okay. You're getting two trials a year. So one of them clubs could be a dead rubber because it's only set up by the agent. And then you're hoping it's all going on one trial that you have to really, really perform now. And if that doesn't work, then that's you for the year. Now you have to make sure, now you're inviting people over to watch it. But again, we should have more control over the players as clubs and uh, as parents, you should realise that that's what's coming down the line. Yeah, and uh, just in terms of the League of Ireland as well, um, Cork City then uh, just wanted to touch on as well because I think there was a lot of uh, a lot made of the the whole Guard of Honor issue there yesterday, um, at Turner's Cross, Graham and uh, but I suppose for them the bigger thing is of course how are they going to be shaping up for the playoffs first half uh, against Derry City they actually looked like they were creating more chances and they looked on top but how do you think they are shaping up for whatever is to come in the in the, the playoffs whether it is Waterford or Cove yeah I think that look they're playing against the Rovers team to have the league sound up and, and but the, I thought they pushed them in the last five minutes and showed a bit of endeavour and a little bit of the fact they were willing to run and, and it wasn't a great pitch that he played on uh, it was a really good goal from Boyce to probably that hindered them uh, getting a result but I think they'd be buoyed from the fact that they put in good performances um, the whole Garrett of Honor thing doesn't bother me I, I, I don't get annoyed about stuff like that uh, as a as somebody who played for Rovers back in 2012 when Sligo won the league and we didn't give them one again it, come, it comes back around it, it's not a, it's not a big deal Biggest thing is you won the league and that's it. You just go and take it. That's when you know your champions is when you pick up your medal. Um, it's Cork's prerogative. If the league just set down a rule and say, look, you have to give a guard of honour if you win the league, then it's set in place. If it's not, then it's up to clubs at their own discretion. Um, and unless it's set in place, then it's up to them. But um, that I remember being part of that team in 2012 where I would have been like, look, we should do it. You know, you've won the league for the last two years. You're passing the mantle. It's up to us to go and get it back off them. We should do it, but I think Cork probably should have done it, but I don't think it's that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. I think the bigger picture is they need to make sure that they're right going into the playoffs and Rovers have ultimately won four in a row and uh, for the second time and now the club has done it. So I think you, just, you should just take solace in that. Yeah, and then, uh, of course, the battle for Europe as well. So Jack Moylan's hat-trick uh, was uh, very fortunate for Shells in the sense it put, keeps them right in that race. Bowes have seemed to have fallen off it. They're playing Cork on Friday and uh, Shells are at Drada and then Dundalk finishing up uh, against UCD. So what's your thoughts on how this is likely to play out in terms of the, the battle for fourth place in, in the event that fourth place ends up being a, a European spot? I think Dundalk will win. I think Dundalk will win. I'm not sure. I'd imagine Bowes might. I'm not sure what Cork will do going into it because they'll have two games this week going into the playoff. Um, I think it's down to Shells and they have to turn up and beat Drogheda. 
there was a bit of needle withdrawal before. I think there's a bit of needle where every team shells plays at this stage. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I think Drotter had a lot of ex players there from two years ago that Damien released. I think he had a papa Clancy before saying you know proper shells man and all that that goes into it. And now there's a bit more needle on the game because Shelbourne, I think a draw does it for them by the looks of it. I think on their goal difference. You know, yeah, Dundalk would have to have around 55, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the goal difference. So, yeah, Barry's right. I think a draw will do it. Um, it's going to be a tight game up there, it's a tight pitch. So, but yeah, there's something at least there's something on the games going into the last the last bit to make sure that that happens. And then they're all just sitting hoping that Pats win the cup final. Then, uh, but yeah, balls seem balls need to get a bit of form together. Need to, they should have probably been one nil up or two nil up at the start of the Dundalk game. Afalabi had two great chances, one after the other. Um, keeper makes a good save on both of them, but they didn't look great in the second half. And they look, they, they still look vulnerable from crosses. I think. I don't think Talbot doesn't cover himself in any glory for the first goal. Afalabi looks like he's dummying it and letting him come and take it, but he just doesn't come and take it, and they score. So, um, yeah, I I can see Shells just getting over the line. I think it'd be. I think Shells will get a draw up and up and up and draw it and that will get them into fourth place and then it's up down the paths. Yeah, and then David, I mean, Dundalk are kind of an interesting one because they released a statement before uh, the win over Bowles and it was in and around the whole uh, potential investment uh, coming into the club and being in talks mm. with it and then trying to dispel a few rumours. But then afterwards as well, then Patrick Huben, um, their record goal scorer and a great player from over the years, um, apparently he's been told he can leave and can look for look for a new club. So it, it it's a club that seems to be in a bit of flux as well. Yeah, no, it is. And obviously, you know, Stephen O'Donnell, didn't he, came out as well, kind of not happy with some of the kind of negativity around around the club and stuff. And But I think that's just a little bit of a symptom of everything that's happened post-peak six and even at that time when they were in charge and they sold the club. And then obviously there's the local consortium coming in as a takeover. And they, they now, it's clear, need, are trying to get investment as well into the club. Because obviously O'Donnell's come in and on the back of winning the cup, but Patson was going in there to try and be the catalyst for something new happening with Dundalk and it, it just hasn't materialised and then yeah we got, like, with, with Pat Huben, like there seems to be an awful kind of sense of maybe just the nature of how sometimes things can happen in football where it's not handled well just that yeah he's got obviously been told he can he he can leave I don't, I don't think they'd be the only one and let, at the moment it's, it seems as if there could be a, a few leaving and it, it kind of strikes me at the moment where if you're looking at it and maybe like listen, you get you get what you deserve in terms of the final the final round of the final round of games, whoever qualifies for Europe and obviously the cup could still have an impact on that. So you do get what you deserve at the end of it. It does kind of it does kind of feel that it's shells at a team who are kind of building towards this, you know what I mean? Like maybe Dundalk and maybe it is, maybe that ties in what O'Donnell was saying, where there's that sense of negativity around the place, but it just kind of feels as if Apron over the cracks a little bit, and he's been doing a good job in terms of being able to still get them where they are. And, and Huben scoring the goals he has, I think he's like 12, 13 goals this season. Like, if it wasn't for him, they wouldn't be even in the position they are, you know. And it just kind of feels as if for a few players there, it's going to be uh, ending for them. And even if they get into Europe by them, was the damage already been done because they've already been already told that they can they can go, you know. Yeah, I was then, actually in that um I was in that post match huddle with Stephen O'Donnell Friday night. There was four of us, four local reporters. He came, he came, you know, loaded and ready. Um, you know, he had something to say and, and he was going to say it regardless. He was asked the question, one of the first questions he was asked was about 
Pat Hoban's future. There obviously was that report, um, I think on Thursday or Friday last week, saying that he'd been been told he could leave. We asked him, could he confirm that? And that's when he started talking about negativity, that he was sick of all the negativity around the club, that press reports were disgusting, that they were undermining what he was doing as a manager. To be honest, I kind of felt sorry for him a little bit. Like, I think he's done a kind of reasonable enough job there. He launched into a staunch defence of his of his time. Obviously, last season, they finished third. I think they were level on points with Derry in second. Um, so they probably overachieved last season. And then when that happens, obviously, fans, their kind of perception of, of what Dundalk should be doing changes. Um, so this season has been a little bit more of a struggle. But like there's been, he's brought in a lot of new players. Some of them you can question the quality, maybe. Um, are they good enough to be where Doc want to go? But um, it's quite a young squad he's brought in. He's got the likes of of Robbie Benson and Keith Ward and, and Pat Hoban as well, who are kind of the elder statesmen now. But um a lot of the players they're kind of playing their first or second season of senior football. A lot of them are new to the League of Ireland. You know, it takes a little bit of time to bet in. I'll be honest, I see a lot of Dundalk. You could probably come away um, from Dundalk matches this season where you've been really, really impressed by how they've played. You could probably count those performances on, on one hand. like the, But the results, in fairness, they've been getting them. David alluded to their Pat Hoban scoring goals. He's the sort of player that if you have him in your team, he'll get on the end of things and he'll win you games, scrappy games. He'll, he'll score goals and you'll win 1-0 or you'll win 2-1. Um, but there's a lot of negativity around the club and Stephen, as, as the manager, is kind of the spokesman for that. So a lot of it gets put on on his door and he has to answer these questions. Um, he didn't confirm or deny on, on Friday night um, about Pat Hoban's future, but then obviously on the, uh, I think on the Sunday, then it was revealed that um, Pat Hoban gave an interview to the Irish Sun himself where he said he was told he could leave. Um, you know, that's that's not going to go down well with fans, um, regardless of even his sporting ability, just the way they feel their all-time record goal scorer has been treated. So... I know he came out and he was, you know, really, really sick and tired of all the negativity around the club. What happened then in the, in the following two days? First, the reporting of his sort of outburst is negative in itself, so that's not gonna that's not gonna come across well. And then obviously Pat Hoban coming out and and revealing that he is has been told he can leave. Um, it's just adding to the pile really at the moment. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a, a big win over UCD and and potentially getting Europe. Um would be great, but they need a favour from from the Rostrata. Um, as as Graham said, I I don't really see that happening to be honest. I think Shells will probably just do enough. Um, at United Park. From a player's point of view, Barry, like and people talk about how does the negativity affect you. So if you're a player at Dundalk and you're looking thinking if that's how they're going to treat Pat Huben, they might do that to me one day. Yeah, that's absolutely. The issue. When people, when players and fans and clubs talk about loyalty. That's, that's, football, yeah. that's football, that's football, though, football isn't it? Like, Otherwise, yeah. it plants a seed that you go, they're gonna do that to me one day. Mm. But it, it, but it, it's so true. But it's like it's across the parties, and it's so rare that, yeah. like, you see, Alan Manis, Alan Manis is getting to walk out, having won the league again, added, and will get a stand ovation. Like, it's so rare that you get yeah. that ending in football. You know, like stuff can happen where without knowing it something could happen where especially in the League of Ireland where it's so intrinsic to how you finish in terms of that the budget like we've seen it even with Rovers do you know what I mean with Roddy Gaffney where Roddy Gaffney's offered a contract a few weeks ago and he's told listen we can offer you this now because this is the budget we have 
But actually, if we win the league, that budget could increase. Like he's not going to sign that contract. So it makes be, be point the same with Jack Bourne. But that's just the nature of it because we're, we're even where Rovers are happened with with past previously. It's just like players, I suppose, will see that. And yeah, like it's for for Huben, it's like it's mad how it's how it's kind of materialized. But the sad thing is, in the grim nature of it, it's very, very rare that you get to walk off into the sunset with with pats on the not pat home, but pats on the back. Do you know what I mean? It's very rare that it happens. Like you know yourself in terms of you can be told, listen, you're not getting a new deal, you're gone, or like we just don't fancy you can train with the reserves or you can go and find yourself a new club until you do, you know. So that's just how football works, you know. There was a feeling at, at Oriel on Friday night that that was the end for Pat Hoban. He was started the game on the bench two games in a row, and which was you know strange in itself given Dundalk had to win the game to have any chance of European qualification on the last day. Like he's your talisman, he's your record goal scorer, he's your top scorer this season. Why leave him on the bench? But people knew. I mean, he came off. Um, he came on. I think with twenty minutes to go, and the crowd gave him a standing ovation. That doesn't happen when players come on the pitch. It happens when they come off. So yeah. I think the fans knew what was coming down the road and and fan like it's, it's the last home game of the season as well so I think they knew that this was going to be the last glimpse we get a, of Hoban in the Dundalk shirt yeah and, and uh, deserved, in, it. deserved that ovation because he's yeah. been brilliant and in regard to Drada United then because this is something we really wanted to talk about uh, Barry so this is uh, something we touched upon at the beginning of course uh, you going over to, to Walsall to get an idea of the new ownership group who are involved with the club now so uh, the Trivella group US investment firm based in Atlanta or sorry in Alabama that is uh, founded uh, just a couple of years ago and uh, the board of uh, Drada United members club limited provisionally accepted the takeover a couple of weeks ago and the vote will be done on the 6th of November at a special general meeting and you touched on Walsall the area and the fact that there is a sense of positivity in general um, from Walsall supporters towards the ownership group and people can read it in full detail on rp.ie where your full piece is but just in regards to the Drogheda um, angle of it as well because they have been a bit of an outlier in the uh, Premier Division in terms of being the the one sort of uh, part-time outfit that has been uh, punching above its weight and Kevin Doherty staying part of that um, when Cork City came in with a bit of interest was that there would be investment into the future. So in, in terms of the short term, what are the promises that uh, that are expected? Well, one thing Trevella have basically said is that professionalism is the key or is is definitely the aim, but it's not going to happen overnight. Um, they've given no guarantees that it will be a full-time outfit next season. In fact, I don't expect that they will be. So you could be looking at 2025 by the time Drogheda are operating at a full-time um, basis, um, which might surprise um, some fans. But, I mean, the problem you have with a, a team like Drogheda is, sure, they're competing in the Premier Division. They've got this investment now. They want to be full-time. But Drogheda United don't have the infrastructure to be a full-time team. And that's like that's what something supporters need to realise. It's not just the case of flipping a switch and all of a sudden now everyone's on full-time contracts and, and we're a full-time team. It's about the infrastructure and they just don't have that. So that's something they're going to look at in the future. At the moment, it, it's all about investment, really. Um, we haven't really got much of a sense of how the squad is going to look next season. Like I would imagine um, the arrival of these new investors will mean that um, some players will maybe who might have interest from elsewhere will be more willing to stay and hang around. And then, you know, depending on what kind of deal they get or what the interest is from elsewhere, um, like Connor Keeley, for example, um, 
I, I don't know whether he'll stay. In fact, I think I expect him to, to leave. He's had a lot of interest in the UK. Dale Rooney and Darren Markey are a couple of other really key players who will definitely have interest from the League of Ireland. Um, but yeah, look, Kevin Doherty being there is is key. There's going to be some changes in terms of the, the kind of day-to-day structure at Doherty United. So um, Ben Boycott, who's the, the co uh, who's the managing director, sorry, of Trivella, will become the co-chairman, but he's based in in Alabama, as you say. So he won't be there on a on a on a daily basis. But they have brought in a guy called um, Wesley Hill, who's going to serve as the executive director. Um, so he'll basically be running things from Drogheda. He's a guy who used to work for Nike. He's got background in startups. So how that translates to running a League of Ireland club, we will see how hands-on he'll be, will be kind of interesting. But as well as that, um, Matt Jordan, who is um, Trivella's kind of VP of, of football operations, he's a um, former MLS player. He played um, for a couple of clubs in Major League Soccer. He was a goalkeeper. So he's also held technical director roles at, um, I think, Montreal Impact and, and Houston Dynamo. So he's going to come in. And what was interesting, actually, in the statement that Trivella released um, announcing the kind of takeover of Drogheda United was that essentially Matt Jordan will come in. And I think the phrase they used was he'll be implementing the kind of technical processes within Drogheda under the guidance of Kevin Doherty. I thought that was really interesting, under the guidance of Kevin Doherty. So does that mean, you know, he'll be taking direction, taking leadership from Kev? If so, I think that's a good thing for Drogheda. I think it's important that Kevin is given autonomy um, to make sporting decisions at the club. Um, I also think like on a, on, a, on a really basic level that will sway, you know, the supporter opinion of the new owners. I think if they came in and they took away Kevin's autonomy that would not go down well given how liked he is at the club him and Dara Doyle are you know fated by United supporters they love him and because they've cemented sort of the club status as a Premier Division outfit sort of really seamlessly over the last couple of years despite all of the key personnel losses there's been so many players that they've lost at that club every year they lose plenty even this like season over the course of the season they lost their lone players, Freddie Draper and Alicia, who he's really key guys. Um, a few others left as well, squad players. So they're constantly having to kind of regenerate and and find new players from somewhere and, and um do that amidst all these predictions of struggle. Last two seasons, I think most people at the outset of each campaign have kind of gone, yeah, Drogheda are going to struggle. You know, they'll do well to stay up or certainly keep out of the relegation playoff positions. And the reality is, was they're kind of finishing seventh and eighth. In terms of points, they're nowhere near. So, you know, Kevin and Dara have done a, a really good job. And I think it's just important that Trivella support them um, and underpin their work rather than undermine it. Yeah, and it, and one final point on it, in terms of Weaver's Park then, and, uh, you know, in the statement, what was interesting is they were promising to, uh, quote, increase the overall fan experience in the short term. What does their uh, entry into this kind of world mean for the for the stadium because that's definitely a key area that needs improvement the problem with weavers park is is that it's just it's location it's so tight there there's very little you can do in terms of really making it much more hospitable than it already is there's really very little you can do now that i i understand they do expect to to put some investment into it they're going to improve facilities like toilets dressing room areas 
um, sort of concessions for supporters, things like that. But ultimately, the, the kind of long-term in-tray item for Trivella will be a new stadium. Um, we've heard quite a lot about it over the years through the FEI and through Louth County Council. Um, there's been various different sites um, kind of north of Drogheda, just north of the town have been identified. One was identified as far away as Dunleer, um, which is you know bizarre. I don't think that would really happen, but there was certainly talk of a site um, you'd be taking Drogheda United out of Drogheda, which which would make no sense. Um, but yeah, look, a stadium is is the main thing. But like, what you have to appreciate as well, this isn't Trivella are not they're they're an investment firm. They're not owners who are going to come in with like millions of quid and just say, yeah, no problem. Here's a stadium. It's not going to happen. They actually bought at Walsall. Uh, the club didn't own the freehold of the Bescot Stadium, um, for years, so they were having to pay half a million pounds in rent every year. So within six months of purchasing Walsall, they actually bought out the freehold. They took a seven million pound loan from a US bank to do so. So, you know, it's it's that kind of situation. It's it's not a case of here's here's the cash. Let's go and let's go and do this. This is going to be a very long term thing. Um, I suppose there's always a wariness from supporters whenever you hear, you know, investment firm buys football club. There's always going to be question marks and wariness over why, what's in it for them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I suppose what a lot of fans can kind of latch onto is the fact that they have invested in in Walsall, who are a League Two club. Um, they're not a club who make huge profits. Um, they're Walsall are kind of located in in the West Midlands. There, they're right beside Birmingham. They're right beside West Brom. They're right beside Villa, Wolves. You know, they're the they're the small club amidst a bunch of much, much bigger clubs. And and, and they don't turn profit. Like So it, it seems to be that Trivella are in for, for the long haul and they're going to invest sensibly. Um, the positivity there was kind of clear for all to see. People can read in my piece. I spoke to members of the Supporters Trust. I spoke to local journalists there. It seems to be pretty positive, but their attitude is time will tell. And, and the problem with when... when a body like Trivella comes into a club and says, we're investing in the long term. When it comes then to drawing conclusions into the work they're doing, it's very difficult because Trivella will say, well, it's a long term project. Don't judge us yet. Judge us in five years, judge us in 10, judge us in 20. And, and that kind of kicks the can of accountability down the road a little bit. And, you know, th that could cause, I suppose, friction down the line with supporters Ultimately, I think it depends on what happens on the pitch. If they can keep them kind of competitive in the Premier Division, um, I don't think a lot of fans are going to be, you know, competing for or demanding to compete for the league anytime soon. But um, staying competitive in the league is important. Building a stadium is very important. And um, yeah, look, it, again, like I say, time will tell. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to uh, link your piece at the in the description box under this episode on YouTube for people who want to read it. But if not, if you're on rt.ie slash sports, you'll find it there. Before we talk about Darren Gibson as well and your interview, David, uh, Graham, first, just on the, the first division playoffs. So Waterford and Cove going to be playing each other in the uh, in the playoff final and Waterford beating at Lone Town 4-2 on aggregate, 3-1 in that second leg at home. Romeo Akachukwu, who I think we also talked about a fair bit in the summer yeah. during the 17th, scoring a, a second half hat-trick. And uh, then also James O'Leary, the, the hero for Cove, as they... Uh, 
they drew with Wexford uh, to edge that uh, on aggregate. So I suppose first off, your thoughts on Romeo Akachukwu and the potentially showed in the uh, in Waterford's win, and also just how you I didn't, feel. I didn't think he had three goals in him. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Go on. I didn't think he had three goals in him. He, he, he's he's a box to box sort. Yeah, yeah. He scored a cracker over in the Euros as well from long. Yeah, distance. from long range against Wales. I think all of these yeah. seem to be where he's running on and slotting them home, but um. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Like what a what a time to burst onto the scene for him in a playoff and, and gets them into the playoff final. Um yeah, really talented footballer. Like you said, we'll go box to box all day. Um really, really technically good, takes the ball in toy areas. But I, I like I said to him to come on and score three goals. I didn't know he had that. I, I knew he was um, a different type of player, but brilliant for them. And and it gives them such a boost going into the into the playoffs now that they know look 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 what we have to come on if and when we need them or or actually you could probably you could probably start now after scoring a hat trick I can't see him yeah. if he gets dropped after that even as a seventeen year old he'd probably be knocking on the door <laughs> but, uh, but no, how, do you, how do you see the Cove the battle with Cove now and the balance between those two teams. I suppose Waterford are favourites, but uh, yeah, Cove Waterford would be favourites. I, I think Cove is the carrot of going up against Cork, and the, both of them have that. But the, the Cove Cork game in a playoff would be would be brilliant. Uh, be yeah, there'd be a proper needle in that. So look, the carrot of playing in the Premier Division is massive for every club. Uh, Waterford are probably best suited at the moment in terms of I think they're full time, um, Cove are part time under Shane Keegan. So. It'd be a difficult ask for them to come up and stay up, but they're there. They might as well give it a go and see what what they can what they can make of it. But I think Warford might have enough for them. Um, yeah. but you, you know Shane's an experienced guy now, and but he's up against an experienced manager and Keith Long, so it's all to play for. And then Corker, it's hard to say Corker hitting form because I don't think they've hit form at all this year. But I think they're. They're basically staying in games a little bit better. They're becoming a little bit more dogged in the games. Um, they're not giving up as much goals. And I do think Rory Keaton will be the difference if if and when it gets to it. Yeah, and uh, of course, wanted to, uh, before we go, wanted to touch on the Darren Gibson interview, David. Um, you kind of talked about how that interview came about at the beginning of the podcast. And obviously for people looking for it, it's on the 42.ie. And title is, if I had kept going, I would have died. I was taking 12 to 14 uh, sleeping tablets a night. And, you know, one of the great things about it, I think it also, you know, there's a lot of perceptions that have built up around uh, Darren Gibson in, in recent years. But uh, I think through the piece, you get a real sense of his personality and, you know, how, I suppose, introvert he was uh, on his way up then landing in a place like Manchester United one of the biggest clubs in the world in the first team as well and he's having to navigate that world and along with that you know he talks about demons and also having to face up to anxiety issues yeah that's like even like as we were chatting and beginning to get more of that sense because he, he again it was someone when obviously when he was a player and he was over coming over for for Ireland games and stuff, he, he wouldn't always do a lot of media and stuff. And there was always that element, you know, because he's a Manchester United player. Sometimes they wouldn't be doing stuff. Um, but then, yeah, as you chat, you kind of learn a bit more about him and just how open he was. And he was very open and willing to willing to chat. But then he was saying that's only something that himself he's been able to do over the last year or so. And even with the when he was talking about the sleeping tablets, like he was hiding that from his wife Danielle. Like she was aware like that he was taking them because as he was saying like it's something that a lot of footballers will do and he mentioned the Deli Ali interview as well and he'd been watching that when Deli Ali was talking about some of the struggles he's had as well and 
yeah, it was just something very telling that just over the course of the year, like always that always that sense of maybe maybe not feel not kind of feeling as if you hundred percent belong in certain situations, and then also when he was performing really well, especially more so at Everton when he was as he spoke about himself having that sense of responsibility. That's when as well injuries then began to 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 really kick in, and that kind of comp- compounded matters for him. Um, but that's yeah, just that was basically the gist of trying to get the like as I said, I wasn't aware of the situation with the with the sleeping tablets, and it was something that obviously, as he said, he, he would have died if he had kept on going that way. And he made some obviously serious lapses in judgment in terms of the issues with, with drink driving, which he which he dealt with as well, and and spoke about very very honest honestly, and the impact that the sleeping tablets were having even at at that time too. So it was just one of those moments where. Like it's difficult a little bit as a journalist because you're obviously invited into someone's home. He, he was clearly ready to talk. You want to kind of give him that that opportunity to speak and let let him say what he what he has to say, especially when maybe he hasn't maybe he hasn't done it in that kind of environment before. And then you also want to kind of probe in a way that 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 gets more out more out of him a little bit as well. But it was it was just all on him in terms of how uh, how open he was, and it was just yeah, it was it was very eye opening just to see it in terms of so much going for him but then still like the personality and the, the person he was and what he would have been dealing with from from early age and all the way through it was always there with him and as you begin to have those struggles as in life as a footballer as well as in life it can all become a bit too much and he's lucky now where he's in a position where he can hopefully where he was able to is able to talk about it and can move on to that next stage of his life you know yeah, and it kind of harked back to the thing we were talking about Patrick Hoban there earlier. There's an there's a part in your piece where you, where he uh, details how he left Manchester United and you know he's brought over to to talk to Alex Ferguson. It's very abrupt, like it's just yeah. like um, oh you know Everton have come in with some interest and well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah yeah because you know obviously known that maybe at this earlier in this in the summer that maybe his time was going to be finishing, but nothing obviously came. And yeah, just mad how like. He'd gone in, got changed, had his boots on him, started doing like one of those rondo boxes at the start of training and was preparing to go out for training. And then he gets called back in and Ferguson, Alex Ferguson is sitting by the boot room, getting his own boots on to go out for training. And he's told, listen, Everton come in for you. I think you should go. And he's like, what now? And he's like, yeah, go on. Like, and uh, it's just like, you've worked so hard to get to that point in your career. I suppose, you know, he scored in quarterfinals, semifinals, the Champions League. And, he was getting to a ceiling where maybe he wasn't going to possibly United judge. He wasn't going to go any further, maybe or become that and do like like Anthony football and he disposable. And as he said himself, listen, there was no hard feelings. That that is football. That's the that's the business at that end. And yeah, within a, a couple of hours, he's at Everton and his medical takes less than an hour because Moyes is like, I need you in the team to play Villa on Saturday. So we this deal has to be done before twelve o'clock on Friday. And then boom, in a in a heartbeat, it's a different element. And you forget like he was doing so well for those couple of years and he has that cruciate knee injury when he comes back to play for Ireland and then the other issues that are there like it's it's it just shows you how delicate it can be to to have that longevity in a career you know yeah and I suppose there's the loneliness of it as well Graham in terms of like obviously you've been in dressing rooms before and some of the, one of the teams that comes out of it is maybe that thing of you're not going to be and especially I suppose somebody as Gibson would say himself in terms of being a more kind of reserved personality not being able to share things with teammates in terms of struggles and things and I, I guess it, it is a bit like that in football it is a cutthroat world and I guess people internalise a lot of things Yeah I think Irish people as well would have a bigger habit of doing it I was yeah. talking to my wife yesterday she's a psychiatric nurse and it's it's a problem that 
young men don't feel they're being heard, but you know, it's it's the people doing the listening sometimes that will, you know, somebody comes to you with a problem and you'll talk about football or something instead of maybe giving them an ear and, and letting them just talk. And I'm sure that's what David felt when Darren started talking, where look, I'm gonna give you a space here. And that was it. That was it. Absolutely. It was like sometimes as a journalist, you want to, you, you might have ideas, but when in that environment, when someone's talking like that, you just have to let them go, you know? And it's cause and effect. Like it's like what happens with leaving Man United, he goes and plays and he does really well, but then he probably never deals with the fact he, he's left Man United, a club he's been at since he was a kid until he maybe gets, sits down and has his cruciate injury. And then he realizes, oh, that, that was gone within a, like, I remember sitting in in an apartment in Dundee United and I'd left Barnsley and I was absolutely, I was more devastated about that and wasn't in a good place because of it. And I just never dealt with it. It was like, and and football, generally football's your first love as a, as a footballer. You, you're all in on it and you, and you sit and wonder why this game that you love so much can cause you so much heartache and pain when all you've ever done is, is give it, <laughs> love and affection and it doesn't come back sometimes and, and it can be it's a it's a it's a cruel mistress as they say as I said to my wife it's it's a it's you're the mistress it's a cruel wife uh football at times but um and that's it but the cause and effect of the sleeping tablets is because a lot of players are taking caffeine pills before the game and then the, the that the knock-on effect is you're not sleeping that evening um and that that that's the issue is that you you're, you're taking something to enhance your alertness in a game, but then they're not going to affect you. You're not sleeping that evening. Um, but look, look, it's good that he's coming out the other side of it. That's the main thing because it would have been another one that you you worried about when you when you hear the story. But it's good that he's coming out the other side of it. But it is it can be a lonely game at times, and unless you have people around you that you can be vulnerable with and talk to, it, it can be even lonelier. Yeah, I suppose that's the final point, David. I suppose his wife uh, comes across as the the real strong character there, who's you know plays an absolutely necessary role in being helpful with him. Yeah, like because again, like literally together since the age of eighteen. Do you know what I mean? Like have a fourteen year old daughter and a nine year old son, and she's been through. She would have seen everything in terms of football and all the stuff he would have been dealing with them with with all the with with everything that was going on, and then obviously wasn't aware of the sleeping tablets, but then even. During the football, during his career as a footballer, that's when she makes the decision as well to kind of train and become qualified as a psychotherapist as well, because she realizes and like she's worked with say prisoners, with female prisoners in, in, in prison who are serving life in prison and stuff, and like she has her own business there as well. So, like, she oh, no, I, I was only chatting to her briefly when I was there in the, in the house because obviously she was coming off to going off to work but yeah he was saying himself it's only been like what Graham said there and he, he said it to himself Darren like just that it's only been in that last year or so since she gave him that ultimatum after realising the extent of his issues about being vulnerable and being open about his problems and, and what he was going through because for so long he did hold everything in and didn't want to be talking about it you know yeah uh, but anyway that brings us uh, to the end of this week's podcast we'll be back next week 
to review the final round of League of Ireland action and the next stage in the playoffs as well as building to the men's FAI Cup final between Pats and Bohemians. Uh, David, thanks very much for coming on. And again, once again, you know, it was a brilliant piece and definitely recommend people to read it. And uh, Barry as well, your piece, uh, it's going to be on rt.ie slash sport. I think, in fact, by the time I think we're finished here, it, it is actually already published so people can read it there. But thanks for your time as well. And Graham, as always, uh, great to have you on. I'm going to have to start doing articles here, rough. <laughs> <laughs>